thing about life is if you don't set yourself that audacious goal, you're never going to achieve it. That's the voice of Alex Blythe, founder and CEO of Lyft Biosciences, headquartered in London. Listen in now to hear Alex's thoughts about leadership and how Lyft Biosciences is committed to developing the world's first off-the-shelf cell therapy to destroy all solid tumors, irrespective of strain or mutation. I'm John Simboli. You're listening to BioBoss. Today I'm speaking with Alex Blythe, founder and CEO of Lyft Biosciences, headquartered in London. Welcome to BioBoss, Alex. Hi there, John. Pleasure to be on the show. Alex, what led you to your role as CEO of Lyft Biosciences? I've always been a, an entrepreneur and an inventor. Um, and I've worked in, in biotechnology, helping um, bring novel um, medicines uh, through to patients for, for sort of 18 years. And uh, although I'd worked in oncology therapies, they were always targeted and they were always, if, if I'm really honest, much of a muchness when you look at what pharma does. You know, it's a model they do well. They're chemical companies. They come up with a target. They come up with a chemical to hit the target. Off we go. And when my own mother got pancreatic cancer, which is perhaps the most deadly of, of the cancers you can get and died rapidly within nine months, uh, it really hit home to me um, that, you know, it, it wasn't being dealt with properly um, and that actually in the industry, developing curative therapies is not actually taken seriously. Uh, to the point that in many big pharma companies where I worked uh, as a strategy consultant, uh, you actually were told to take the words out of your presentation because they weren't realistic. And I think the thing about life is if you don't set yourself that audacious goal, you're never going to achieve it. And they've been on that same road for a long time, and I decided I wanted to be in a separate road. And so I set up Lift Biosciences to have a new way um, of approaching cancer, where rather than looking at how do you kill cancer, I looked differently and said, why don't most people get cancer, and how do we emulate what those fortunate people have that the less fortunate don't have? When you thought about how you could do something after your mother's passing, when you thought about how you could make a difference, were there other ways you considered that were different paths to... to to make that change, to make that difference, besides the hard, very hard thing you've set out to do to create a cure? I think my mother was a very empathetic and kind and giving person. And so I think in my mind something snapped where, you know, in your 20s, you're very much about yourself, very sort of egotistical existence, many of us lead, pursuing our career. Um, and something just snapped in my mind where I realized that actually that wasn't what life was about. And life was about, you know, getting down to helping each other and that we weren't individuals, we're a group. And actually the solution Lift Biosciences has is a group solution. It's about finding the people with the best immune systems to help people with the weak immune systems. And to be honest, that's how I look at all of life now. It, it's This isn't about my career. It's not about, I, I don't even think about my career so you have no interest in it um, this is really about the mission I'm on and achieving that mission and that's all that matters I was with my daughter and I was doing bath time and she was she was uh, three and my mother had just passed away and she asked if we could bring back grandma and it was through tear-filled eyes that I had to explain to her that we couldn't bring back grandma um, but that maybe we could stop 
other people losing their grandmas. Um, and that's when I decided I was going to do something. Yeah. What was it about the idea, the scientific idea around lift biosciences that was appealing as opposed to several other different scientific approaches you might have gone on? How, how did you land on that one? I had the realization as I was watching my mum fade away that targeted therapies fail because tumors adapt and they don't. So immediately I was turned off anything that was targeted um, because I could see it was always going to be a losing battle. And in pharma, they're increasingly putting combinations together, um, which is, you know, it, for me is almost as, as foolish as, you know, you're trying to trap a, a hen with putting multiple bits of books down, trying to trap it off, it's just going to run away. And I see the same thing with tumour cells. You know, you're, it's like trying to get a key to an ever-changing lock and there's just not one, there's thousands. And I knew that was really fruitless in many cases. Um, and so it had to be a living therapy that had a broad mechanism action for killing, where it would kill irrespective of mutational strain. Uh, so that ruled out pretty much all small molecules for me. Um, it also ruled out adaptive immune cells that could no longer adapt. Um, so I was looking at the innate immune system with the idea as to, you know, why my mum, why did my mum die of this? Where when I worked on lots of other cancer therapies, uh, that wasn't quite in my head. And it was that realisation that, you know, many people, this doesn't happen to them, why? You know, this is something where we all talk about families that have a history of cancer, but on a normal distribution curve, the other side of it is completely ignored, and that's that some families have no family history of cancer whatsoever. You never hear about that. So I started investigating those families and trying to understand what it was, because in the innate immune system you hear quite a bit about macrophages and, and NK cells, but they make up a tiny proportion of your white blood cells. The elephant in your body that nobody talks about is neutrophils that make up most of the white cells in your body. And if you talk to any doctor, when they look at a cell count after somebody's had, say, leukemia or anything major, major trauma, the one thing they look at very closely on that cell count is neutrophils. They don't look at T cells. You know, that's a bit low. Oh, okay. But they look at neutrophil count because we all know if you don't have your neutrophils, you're going to die. Um, but what people don't really stop and think is if you don't have the right type of neutrophil, you're going to die. So there needs to be quality and quantity. Um, and so I was looking at these cells and I found a piece of work done by Prof Professor Sui, uh, Zheng Sui, who I think is uh, under-recognized in his age. Uh, and perhaps one day, if this all works out, will be a, a, the next Alexander Fleming for his discovery. But he found uh, a mouse that he was experimenting on. And when he gave it sarcoma S180 cells um, with a view to testing it uh, with giving it this cancer for other things, um, it didn't take. And no matter how much he upped the dose, it didn't take. He then had the wisdom, I think, to do what most people don't do. Most people would throw that mouse away, trying to get on with their experiment and find a mouse that did take. Yeah? And I've heard many people say that to me since, by the way. But what he did, which I think was so brilliant, is he was like, well, is this genetic? And so he got this mouse to have progeny. He found that they also were mainly resistant, but it wasn't a simple on-off switch. It wasn't like all of them were. And um, then he took normal mice, new, new, new mice, and he injected them with sarcoma S180 cells, 
and he created a few different arms. Obviously, the first arm with no just as a control, they all die within 28 days. But another arm, he gave um, the progenitor cells that would go on to be neutrophils um, to from the descendants of what in the press became known as super mouse, but let's say an exceptional immunity mouse. And 100% of those mice survived and had, went on and led a normal normal life as, as far as a mouse can. That really surprised me when I saw that. He then did similar experiments with transferring other cell types and he didn't find the mice survived. And for me, that was a big red flashing light that neutrophils were where the game was at and where my solution was going to be. So I teamed up with Professor Sri. I actually called him uh, during another of my daughter's amazing bath times um, to convince him to help me set this up and work with me. And actually, it was my three-year-old daughter and me who persuaded him to help us get set up. It would, I would just be guessing that as you went down this path, and as you sought the solution, it, it must have been somewhat startling to actually find it and, and perhaps find it within I don't know, whatever period of time. I mean, that sounds like quite a quest. And trying to put myself in that same position, I would think, I hope I find something, but I don't know if I will. And then you, you appear to have found something. Can you remember what that moment or that it must have seemed unreal? To take something on that big, like, hey, tell your friends you're going to cure cancer, you know, it takes a lot of gusto. And to be honest, I wasn't feeling like that at that moment. And... Um, you know, so seeing what this guy had and thinking, right, I can make this work in humans, I'm going to do this. You know, it was a massive jump forward to say, I can do this. And, um, you know, it was actually talking to other friends who knew me from previous things I'd built up in the past. And, you know, they were very encouraging and basically saying, you know, these people need to give money to somebody who's going to do something. And if it was me and it was my money, I'd definitely give it to you because I know you'll see it through. You know, if there's anyone to do this, it's you. So it was actually people were very supportive and kind at the time. And I think without them, I, I wouldn't have managed to do it. When people say, yeah, but what do you do as the founder and CEO? What do you do each day? What kind of answer is appropriate there? I'm good at strategizing. I'm good at knowing how to uh, motivate people and really get people who are far more brilliant than I'll ever be to apply their big brain to a, uh, a course of action that is very likely to result in a fantastic result. Uh, and that's really what I'm doing. I've, 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 I'm kind of the guy driving the bus. You know, I've got this bus, I know where I'm going, I've got my route map, and I get the smartest people I possibly can on the bus. Uh, and they're the people in the lab, they're the people who are actually doing the real science. And uh, I'm just the guy driving the bus. Yeah, and I'll go and raise money, I'll go and talk to investors, I'll go and tell them that this bus is going here, do you want to back me going there? And, you know, I try and get them on the bus as well. Did your experience in consulting help you to prepare for that role you just described for me? I think certainly being able to pitch an idea when it's just a concept and you haven't got the real evidence yet is something that most scientists are not comfortable with doing. And I think when you're a consultant and you've been used to building up a strategy first and then delivering the evidence second, and you see it that way around, it's massively helpful because, you know, I still have very funny debates with scientists where I'm telling them we're going to patent something and they're telling me you can't patent that. 
because there's no literature citing that that can be done. And I'm like, yeah, that's why we compact it. And we go around in this argument where they're like, but there's no evidence that it can be done. And, uh, you know, you really have to explain to them that we're going to get the evidence and then we're going to do this and it's going to be a pattern and it's going to work. And, you know, they really have to look into your eyes and believe you or they would never get on that bus. This came to you from what you described to me. You didn't seek this out. This arrived powerfully in your life. But can you look back at when you were eight or nine or ten and say, oh, I wanted to do something. I wonder if it has anything to do with what I'm doing now. I was always that kid daydreaming out the window when I should have been listening to the teacher for starts. So I think I was always daydreaming that I was going to do this thing one day. Yeah, so I dreamed big always, and I think I always knew I wanted to invent things. I loved reading about inventors. You know, Thomas Edison was uh, somebody that I, I was always very infatuated with, as well as uh, Sir Humphrey Davy. So I, you know, I was interested in these people and how they came up with these inventions and what, you know, what difference that made to people's lives. But I guess another thing when I was that age is I was dyslexic. So up until about 10, I couldn't really read. And so I had this, you know, I spent a lot of time in my own head. It was like trapped in syndrome where, you know, I was a very good, strong chess player. There are lots of reasons that my parents knew I was smart, but I couldn't put it on a page. Um, And so I spent a lot of time thinking, really. And the other thing I learned to do is persevere. You know, because things were tougher for me, so I had to work a lot harder. And I had friends who were much more gifted than me, who, you know, today when I look at them, they used their gift to really make their own lives easier by not letting everybody else know how smart they were. And so they have an easy life. They finish their job probably by midday, and then they're coasting, right? Uh, but I always knew that wasn't going to be. I was going to work really hard at something I, that was just out, you know, was out of reach, but I was going to make sure I could do it. Over this period of time of being the founder and being the CEO, what have you learned about your management style or your management approach that works well for you, that that defines who you are? Yeah, I think naturally I've always known I'm an ideas person and I can always inventive problem solve my way out of anything. Uh, And I've always kind of had that bit and I've always had the bit where I can get people, I guess, followership, get people to follow in what I'm doing and, you know, we, we all go on it together and they, they know I'm, I'm going to look after them, basically. So there's a, uh, you know, there's an earnestness that people can read, I think. My face is so readable always, people always say this, that I think naturally people trust that things are going to be all right with me. But I think the thing I hadn't developed and it took me a while to really appreciate was in my younger days, I, I was trying to be the smartest guy in the room all the time. Um, you know, maybe it was making up for childhood of not having that, that locked-in syndrome that I couldn't express it fully. Uh, and I think the big switch is as I've got older um, and I did have my low mood period, I, I no longer could do it all. And you couldn't just be reliant on, oh, Alex is going to solve it, Alex is going to do it, uh, because I couldn't be that guy every day anymore. And so I actually learned to just give things completely over to other people, and I just watched them completely flourish. And the longer I stayed silent and didn't criticize or didn't intervene or didn't say, what about this? You know, the more I saw them become confident and make big leaps forward that they wouldn't have made if I'd done it for them, because that wouldn't have given them the chance to grow and learn themselves. And so that really changed and it enabled me to delegate everything properly and realize I didn't need to be in control of it. And yes, they would get there, you know, maybe not today, but they'll get there by tomorrow. 
And that was a big shift in my head. And so now, rather than trying to be the smartest guy in the room, I spend a lot of my time recruiting and investing in people so that I'm the dumbest guy in the room because that actually makes me much more comfortable that everything's going to be all right, whether I'm there or not. When someone says, who is Lift Biosciences, what's, what's your usual answer for that? Yeah, Lift Biosciences is a allogeneic, innate cell therapy company. Allogeneic just meaning it's from somebody else. Um, that is developing an affordable cure for cancer. Um, and that's really what we're about. And I think the affordable thing, people really haven't cottoned onto enough because we have actually, we're in an age where we are going to see a lot more cures coming through. Um, but making it affordable is key. And people don't think about that early enough. And I'm a biologist and an economist, weirdly. Um, and so for me, that's natural. And so I set about something that could be off the shelf, much, much cheaper, that can get really curative results. What makes Lyft Biosciences different from other companies in the space? And the space can be defined in so many ways. So what, what is differentiating? We are the only neutrophil-based uh, cancer therapy, I think is the first thing to point out. The second thing is, is that we are not spin out from university. And I have to point this out because literally, normally, they're like, are you a pharma company, a big biotech company, or a spin-out? That's normally like the three categories. And I'm like, no, we're none of those things. Uh, I'm someone who had an idea, and I developed a patent for that idea, which got granted uh, along with a load of other patents. And I then built the evidence around it to show that I was right, the team was right, Professor Swee was right. Um, and... You know, that's where this has come from. We're a result of approaching the problem and saying, how do you best solve this problem? Had you early on in that process thought, well, maybe I will seek out a big pharma company and, and show this idea and bring it under that umbrella because it's hard to build a company from the start? I went to charities actually originally and said, look, here's this great technology, I'll give it to you. And they basically said, well, you know, if you develop it a bit and take it and work it in humans, then we'd love to come in. And I said, you know, every pharmaceutical company in the world would love to come in once we've done that. You're meant to be here to fill the void before then and try new things. And uh, I couldn't get them to help me. And so I had to give up my consulting company that I was running. I had to get, you know, get rid of that, leave it, have no salary for two years, uh, you know, put all, everything I had into this, lose everything in life in order to just keep going and make this work and try it myself. And then, ironically, I went to a German company called Merck, and I asked them to help me, and they just gave me the money. They just gave me some money to get started, and I also went to MedCity. Um, Sarah at MedCity was very kind, and she got me started. So then I got partnered with King's College, and we managed to get the evidence. And it was amazing. We, you know, I'd filed a patent before I had the evidence, before I had the team. And, uh, you know, we had 12 months to get the data to back up the patent or it's void. And we managed to, you know, raise the money, get the team in from King's College, get the evidence. And we had three weeks left on the clock when the evidence came in to support the patent. And that's the patent that's obviously been granted and we've got others backing it up. But had we not got that, this may have been a very different story. It's remarkable. I was just about to ask, and I'll say what was on my mind. I was just about to say something like, well, how did you persevere given these, these tough odds, uh, 
But it, it occurs to me now, just based on what you said, that things were happening so rapidly and your deadlines were so tight, there might not have been much time for second guessing. It must have been just flat out. And we got very lucky. I mean, things that I thought would happen, happened. I just intuitively got what we were doing and I could see how the body should work. I'm a big believer in evolution and I could just see how things should work in people who don't get cancer. And, you know, Professor Swee's thoughts and input was very useful for setting me the right course for that as well. And, yeah, we got a hell of a lot right, and hence we were able to patent it. In my experience, there's those, especially at investor conferences, there are those moments when the founder or the CEO describes what, what the idea is about. And then, you know, afterwards, there are people who want to talk because... If they correctly understood, there might be a match. There are people who don't want to talk because they correctly understood. They're just not in the same framework. There's that interesting third group that says they are interested, but uh, on, on, after discussion, you might realize that actually they heard something different than what you intended. And that's that can be an awkward and an interesting moment, right? So when that happens, if that happens, and people say, oh, I understand, Alex, and you say, well, it's actually not that, it's this. What What is that conversation like? I'm a bit outspoken about what I call depreciating returns on technology investment. And I believe, again, it's the biologist economist in me, you know, as you're spending money on something, as you go along on the x-axis, the y-axis is then progress, and it has depreciating curve. You know, we are misspending money as a human race to protect people and look after people. We are being incredibly inefficient, and it's 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 heartbreaking because 10 million people a year die because of this inefficiency. And, and the tragedy I see is herd mentality. Nobody ever got fired for just following everybody else and making the same mistake. And that's what's so sad. People who go out on a limb expose themselves, they feel, and so they don't do it. And yet, if you think, where does a breakthrough come through from? It's not going to be an increment on 249 of the same thing. You know, that's not going to be where the cure happened, where it didn't happen before. It's going to be a completely different way of thinking. Because your approach is, sounds like, quite different from others, it, it would seem natural that investors in particular would say, would look for a model that's similar and say, uh, the comfort of, oh, I see, you're one of those. When people do misunderstand and look for a category and pick the wrong one because yours is a new one, what, what category is that that they pick? I think they liken us often to macrophages because macrophages, there's a, a, a good type, an M1, and a, a bad type, an M2. And it's well known that the problem they have is that when the monocytes move from the blood into tissue, into tumour tissue, into a negative tumour environment, they switch to an M2 because they're actually having to differentiate from being a monocyte to being a macrophage. So they're vulnerable. And that's what we get likened to. But with neutrophils, that isn't the case. They're more like a, the hovercraft of the immune system, I like to say. They move beautifully from blood into tissue without changing state. Uh, and so they are not vulnerable at that moment going through that tumour microenvironment if they were healthy in the first place from an exceptional donor, for example. If they're from a cancer patient, that's different. They're not produced the right way in the first place. They're a sort of N, N1 dummy. They're not really an N1. And then they're susceptible to TGF-beta and they can switch to an N2. But if it's really healthy in the first place and it's been produced in the bone marrow in the right way or it's from NLIFT, our cells, that's not a problem. 
is it necessary to understand why a donor is has a, his, a family has no history of cancer to be able to apply your science, or is it simply is it sufficient to I just identify those people and then develop the technology? If you were thinking of how do you find a really fast runner, uh, a really good test is to get them to have a run and then see who's fastest. And we basically, you know, have that test. We have an assay where we test the cancer-killing ability of different donors. Yeah. So we have a good way of doing it, and we select then the stem cells from those people. But if you were looking at, say, the racehorse industry, you could predict which young horses were going to be fast based on their ancestors, their parents. We do a similar thing. We look at people who have no family history of cancer because they're very likely also to then not develop cancer and have very good immune cells. So it's the same logic. And we're not, you know, the data's, there's not enough yet to absolutely say it's this yet, but it looks like it's about five times more likely that you will have an N1A, an N1-alpha uh, super-killing neutrophil if you have no family history of cancer. What kind of partners are a good fit to lift biosciences? Yeah, certainly people have a very open mind. Um, and so, you know, from that, that old Buddhist story of, you know, in order to take on more information, your glass cannot be full. Um, uh, so I look for people who are really smart. They have a huge amount of information, but they're humble about what they know and they're open to new ideas. So they don't think they know it all. And my CSO is fantastic in that regard. I mean, she's a really brilliant lady. Um, so, you know, Oksana Polikova is fantastic and really has that, that, that very humble attitude despite being a very experienced cell biologist in, in what she's done. She's already brought two cell therapies through uh, to, to, to clinic what she's doing. And I, I look for partners who have that sort of mentality and I actually invite them to our socials. So when we have our socials for my team, I invite our, you know, the people who manufacture our cells, I invite our lawyers, by our investors, I have everyone. We're a big team who think different. How does the pipeline at Lift Biosciences, how is that an expression of your vision for what you're trying to achieve? Our pipeline is very different in that when I worked in Big Pharma, um, what you used to have, and biotech, everyone really, they, they, it's a bit of an American phrase, but everyone uses it. We go for low-hanging fruit is what they tell me. And what that means is, when you're trying to take a, a product and look at its life cycle over its patent, which normally is about 12 years, you go for the easiest indications first where you're going to get great results. And then you take on the tougher ones as you go. So you're building on great, you're building out from a position of strength. So it makes sense in business terms. However, it really doesn't make sense for patients because if I invert that on its head, when you look at actually unmet need and who gets therapies, the result is the toughest things don't see therapies come through because by the time you get to the end of the patent life and they're like, hey, what about that pancreatic cancer thing we were going to do something about? And it's like, oh, well, the patent's at the end of its life. You know, there's no money to do that now. And if you can imagine that happening constantly in every company for 50 years, that explains why there's been no real progress in the survival rate in pancreatic cancer for 50 years. And I turned that on its head and said, we're going to do the complete opposite of that. We're going to go for the toughest things first. And we're doing that because we are tumor agnostic. We actually can destroy pancreatic tumors just as easily as you know, we can kill, you know, so get, get rid of lymphomas or softer 
targets. Therefore, we've gone for the sort of dark horseman of the apocalypse. So literally, if you look at what Cancer Research UK have as their number one targets as a charity, they're our number one targets as a company. My understanding from reading just a little bit of the background material about you and about the company is that the standard application of the mouse model might not always be in the best interest of patients. If that's the case, why is, would that be so for your company and what is the alternative and, and how do you get people to understand the alternative? If you look at the history of, of medicines, um, they've come from a world of chemical companies. And the thing about chemicals are, you know, when you're giving an amount of chemical to something, it's very much equivalent to its, its body mass. So we all know that when things have only been tested in adults and you're giving it to your kid, people tend to just sort of half it, don't they? Um, but you can be a bit more exact than that. But people just inherently get the basic idea, you know, don't give them too much if they're little. Well, with a mouse model, you essentially are giving them like a thousandth of, of what you would give a, a human. Um, and there's even like calculators that nicely dose adjust. And it's because it's just a toxic chemical. And so you reduce it down to see, does it hurt the mouse? And does it actually help the mouse destroy, let's say, the tumour? And you dose adjust it. And that makes sense. Uh, and then we move on to more recent things like antibodies. Antibodies uh, also can work quite well in a mouse. They have a few problems, but generally can make it work. Uh, when you start getting to even bigger things like whole cells, whole human cells, if you put a human cell in a mouse, it's a completely alien environment for that cell. And the problem we have is we're not trying to cure cancer in mice, we're trying to cure cancer in humans. If I wanted to cure cancer in mice, I'd do what Professor Sui has already done, and I'd use mouse cells. And we already know that works. Yeah, we've got all the mouse data. I am trying to cure cancer in humans. I want to test it in humans. And we find that when we put them into mice, they don't have the right chemokines, they don't have the right growth factors for our cells to mature from progenitor state into you know, the super cancer-killing neutrophil stage. And for storage reasons, you can't store neutrophils um, uh, very well. You'll get very poor recoveries. You need to store them as progenitors. And so we then have that problem. We can also have the problem that if we, you know, we use mice that have got more of an immune system, then they start killing our cells. So we tend to use the mouse with a very compromised immune system. Uh, it's an NSG. And then we will use a, a, a gene knocking so that it's, a, it's able to produce some of the growth factors our, our cells need. But it's never going to be a, the right environment because it's not human. When you do solid tumour analysis, when you have predictive power in a mouse study for what would then happen in the clinic for a human, they've looked at it and it's 8.5%. 8.5% of those things that would be, say, curative in a mouse will be then be curative in a human, for example, or get similar levels of efficacy. I mean, that's pathetic. And there are new technologies called organoids or tumoroids specifically for solid tumours. And when they've looked at testing in these tumoroids, you get 80 to 90% predictive power of what will then happen in the clinic in a human. Ten times better. Why would you not switch the efficacy studies to focusing on the tumoroids and just keep the toxicity study to the mouse? It just doesn't make sense to be using such a backdated method when cell therapies are not comfortable in mice and we're holding back progress and that means it's unethical. People are going to die because things are delayed unnecessarily because we're trying to cure cancer in humans, not mice. What's new at Lift Biosciences? 
we're particularly focusing our efforts on tumoroid models, so developing our efficacy data there. Uh, we have some new mouse models coming through as well. We're getting our uh, quality target product profiles ready so that we can have consistency. Uh, we've been nicely simplifying our manufacture, which is very simple compared to most cell therapies anyway. Um, so all of that's going incredibly well. And I'm also excited about the IPSC work we're doing because, you know, as I said earlier, we want to develop an affordable cure for cancer. And when you switch from a donor-led model where we can you know, look to produce about enough from one donor to treat 100 patients, with the IPSC, it becomes donor independent. You no longer need the donors uh, again, um, and you have potentially an infinite supply. And that means you get massive economies of scale. So we could hope to you know, move from a cost that was putting us as a sort of third, fourth line to actually realistically trying to get into maybe even a first line position um, for some higher metallic cancers like pancreatic um, by bringing the cost low enough that, you know, when you do the health economic modelling, like people like NICE, that it would stack up. What aspects of thought leadership are especially interesting to you as far as new areas in biopharma and biotechnology? I am very interested in going before the word target. So rather than saying, what are we trying to target as the start point, which literally in most pharmaceutical companies is where they start, is realizing that there's a whole load of options that could be taken before you use the word target that you are ruling out by starting there. And so I would like people to actually look more broadly and recognize there can be broad mechanism of action. You don't have to have this targeted mechanism. And particularly in living therapies, they will have good judgment, and so they will be selective anyway, and they will not damage healthy tissue, just as our NLIF doesn't. Um, you don't have to just have a targeted molecule to then not damage something else. It's sort of 1950s thinking. And I, I think people need to move on uh, in thinking that to have selective for only destroying diseased tissue or whatever it is does not mean it has to be targeted uh, in that sort of way. It can naturally have a good judgment. And I think that softer approach, rather than a sort of digital on-off approach, is better. Um, and I think things will move more and more to that, of realising you can take this broader approach. Nature has an answer. Let's look at nature's answer, because nature's already done millions of years' worth of experiments through natural selection, and you're completely ignoring them. So I think going to those is, is the place people should start, not what's the target. Alex, thanks for speaking with me today. Thanks so much, John, for having me on the show. It's been a real pleasure talking to you and a really real delight meeting you. When listening to Alex Blythe talk about his work, you immediately understand why he views the founding of Lyft Biosciences as his mission the poignancy of his story helps us comprehend his perseverance, his dedication to coming through for patients. But there's something else powerful going on. Alex's willingness to chart a new scientific path. I'm struck by how Alex brought together his realization that life is about helping others and his insight that for him, pursuing a cure for cancer is a group solution one in which Lyft Biosciences analyzes data about people with the best immune systems and works to build a scientific platform to harness this knowledge. 
Hearing Alex describe his early fascination with inventors and his appreciation for how nature has done millions of years of experiments through natural selection helps explain Alex's convictions, his comfort with taking on the toughest things first and embracing a different way of thinking. We can all appreciate Alex's dedication to his mission and to seeking new scientific solutions, but in the end, I come back to a profoundly human moment Alex recounting how he explained to his daughter, maybe we could stop other people from losing their grandmas. As Alex affirmed, that's when I decided I was going to do something. I'm John Simboli. You're listening to BioBoss.